We are exposed to millions of microorganisms every day, but we don't fall sick that often. It is because our immune system is working hard in the background to keep us safe, without us even knowing it. We will discuss how this happens in this podcast. Stay tuned. Hello everyone, this is Antibodies and we are back with our Immunology 101 series after a year's break. We, we did our episode number 4 in 2019 and this is our episode number 5 in 2021. That was a huge break that gave us enough time to write this script, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, joining me today is Eugenio from National Autonomous University of Mexico. Hello guys, it's really nice to be back. And Samriti from University of Ottawa. Hi everyone. And Natalie from City of Hope Cancer Research Center, which is a real place as I've been told. Yes, it is a real place and hello. <laughs> yeah, I, I have been very excited for this episode because one of the, this, this is very close to why I started Immunology 101 series initially, because everybody gets confused with what is gene rearrangement and i thought uh gene rearrangement being a very critical concept in immunology and also one of the toughest one for people to swallow i had a big issue um during my undergraduate days so i think this will this might be one of our most important episodes and i can't wait to start it but right before we start about our episodes i got a very nice joke to tell you all Okay, okay, hit us with it. Okay. Okay, okay. So, only genuine laughters, okay? <laughs> because because I've, I, I know that when you're fake laughing it. Anyway, how did the B-cell get a job at Walmart's clothing department? How? How? Well, are you guys curious to know the answer, really? Oh, you know I am. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> Because she had experience in rearranging genes. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's bad. <laughs> that's well. Yeah, we we sometimes make jokes. We never we never promise about making good jokes. And yeah, <laughs> but yeah, before starting about our episode, uh, we always have to cover a base some basic terms that the audience should know as we go about our episode. So. First, we'll go with the terminology section and Eugenio, would you like to take this one? Sure. So let's start with terminology. First, we need to talk about germline DNA. So the, the DNA in germ cells, the egg and the sperm, which are passed on the progeny, egg and sperm cells undergo meiosis and gene rearrangement and any changes in the genetic code here are passed on to the next generation. So this is the uh, first uh, term that we need to know. The second one will be somatic cells. So all other cells in the body apart from egg and spurs are called somatic cells. They aren't known to rearrange their genes and any mutation in these genes are not passed down to the progeny. So basically uh, it's important to remember that these cells are not uh, going to be pass passing their DNA to uh, to the progeny. That's the main difference between somatic and germline uh, cells. Okay. 
so if I say there is a virus that integrates itself in my muscle cells, since muscle cells are somatic, I can be sure that this virus is not going to my kids. Well, not yeah. genetically. Not genetically. Okay. Oh yeah, not genetically. It can <laughs> still know. just if hop you, on, like hop onto them. On them or... <laughs> Watch or out for that. If it's since it's a muscle virus, if I flex too hard near them. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so let's go for the third one, which is antigen. So antigen is, typic is typically a foreign particle that can be recognized by the immune system. And it's very interesting because uh, the origin of the word antigen actually comes from combining two concepts, which is antibody generating, which is something fabulous that I didn't knew until uh, this uh, episode. It's really interesting. This. Yeah, thanks so, Natalie for that yeah well uh you can also have a, a self-antigen it's just something that your uh immune system does recognize and it may or may not amount an attack against it right yeah that's so, the key point right it, it does yeah. recognize yep it knows it's there it's just uh it's just deciding not to make an attack on that exactly so finally uh, we're going to talk about B cells and T cells. So these are cells of the adaptive immune system that possess antigen specific receptors. So um, talking about the receptor, that was when scientists only knew about antibodies, but we know now that antigens can be recognized by other cells and proteins too. So let's talk about finally of two uh, important concepts for these uh, episodes. The first one will be antibodies. Antibodies are proteins, and antibody is made of a big change called the heavy change and a small change called the light change. An antibody has two heavy chains and two light chains that are put together like the English alphabet Y. So the word immunoglobulin also means antibodies and is used interchangeably by immunologists. So basically, this is, this is the most important word you need to remember because it's the name of our podcast, Antibodies. So <laughs> oh, yeah. don't forget this. And finally, uh, we have a bunch of uh, uh, different numbers of antibodies and immunologists use the word antibody repertoire. So which means that are all the possible vari varieties of antibodies the B cells and particular organisms can make. An example, an example of this is if an organism can make one million different types of antibodies, we should use the term antibody repertoire to refer to all those millions antibodies. So with this, I just finished the terminology and we should start up with this uh, uh, 101. Yeah, and since we're talking about antibody repertoire, this was a word that I started I started acknowledging how important that is later during the beginning of my PhD and about every all the antibodies that let's say Natalie can generate so I would call it Natalie's antibody repertoire or all the antibodies that I can generate and it's 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 more likely a theoretical uh, estimate in my opinion it's uh, unless I don't think anybody is uh, actively sequencing all the B cells inside a person to look oh, at their No, I think they just did math. Yeah, but. it's just it's just math and where the math comes from will be you'll understand that from this episode and possibly a subsequent episode which will be the second part. But yeah, 
I think we are ready to dive into the episode. That was a very good terminology section. Thanks, Eugenio. Thank you, Eugenio. You're welcome. All right, cool. Well, now we're getting into the intro. Uh, so one of the most complicated aspects of the adaptive immune system is that it has this huge variety and its diversity in recognizing the plethora of antigens that it may encounter in your entire lifetime. The two main players of the adaptive immune system, we call them T and B cells, and they're responsible for recognizing these antigens. They both have unique receptors that recognize foreign particles, and so for the T cell, they're called a T cell receptor, or a TCR, and for the B cell, they're called a B cell receptor, or a BCR. Not so hard to remember. <laughs> what we'll be talking about today are the rules that kind of govern the array of how these receptors are arranged. These rules are pretty much the same for Ts and Bs, so if you understand how B cell receptors are generated by B cells, it won't be too hard for you to understand how T cell receptors are made in the T cells. For simplicity, we're just going to talk about the B cell receptors in this episode, and uh, to be specific, we'll be talking about antibodies, which is basically the secreted form of the BCR. So you can actually think of it kind of like a barcode. A barcode is made of the same consecutive black lines separated by white spaces. The components of the barcode is actually the same, but how the lines are spaced changed how the identity attributed to the unique arrangement of that lines. So you could have a barcode for some cereal or for, for some chocolate, and the barcode is still made of black and white lines, but they will tell the machine two different things depending on how they're arranged. In this way, genes encoding BCRs or TCRs can be thought of as the black and white lines and rearrangement brings variability in their spacing. Now, to understand why we're even interested in how antibodies and B cells are generated, we will have to travel back to the 20th century. So. Ooh, 20th century. <laughs> so back in the 1960s, there was this paradigm, you know, one gene, one protein. It was believed that, you know, only one protein product could be made from a particular gene. So you had gene X, it's only going to give you protein X, and, uh, you know, gene Y would give you protein Y. So if you had an organism with a thousand known genes, you could deduce that maybe it had a thousand different types of proteins. But this paradigm posed a problem, I mean, in a lot of different ways, but especially when you're looking at antibody diversity in B cells. When we finally like realized that the antibody repertoire was so huge as it is, um, we realized that this was a huge problem. So what I mean when I say that the antibody repertoire is huge is that a lot of different antibodies can be made. It's such a large repertoire, in fact, that you can actually make an antibody against something that's like synthetically, um, uh, artificially synthesized in a lab, something that you would never have encountered naturally in the wild that somebody like made last week. So this meant that you can make an antibody against a new chemical that didn't even exist before. And that's when the one gene, one peptide paradigm seems to fail. There could be billions and trillions of different types of compounds that the antibodies could recognize uniquely, but that would mean that we would have millions of genes uh, according to the one gene, one peptide paradigm. But fact is, when you sequence a human genome, we only have a couple thousand genes, more like 20,000, 30,000, and out of these, most of them have nothing to do with immunoglobulins. So the pressing question and what we're gonna address today is how B cells can make so many different types of antibodies with a very limited set of genes. Yeah, and I can understand how the one gene, one protein hypothesis would come about because that's a simplistic way of looking at things. And with whatever, 
with whatever tools we had in 20th century. I don't blame immunologists to make things simplify, s simple like this and hope that it turns out to be right. They were just like, okay, we invented the central dogma. Now it's <laughs> totally wrong. Good yeah. job, guys. <laughs> I think they had before the, the genome was rearranged, they had everybody like guess how many genes were in the human genome. And people were guessing in like the millions. And the truth is we have less genes than an onion, which is <laughs> so sad. Yeah, I eat an onion. I need more genes than my onion. This is just blasphemy. Yeah, but an onion can still make you cry. Yeah, because of their higher gene count. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, we have this big question. How can B cells make so many kinds of antibodies with a limited set of genes? Okay, so to answer that question, you know, we'll really have to step back into history. So even farther than what uh, Natalie was discussing in the 1960s, we'll go back to the 1900s, um, where, you know, there was a set of theories called uh, the germline theories that were proposed by some of the immunologists at that time. Uh, what wait germline theories? What does that mean in English? So uh, germline DNA is basically what we call um, all the DNA uh, that we get during the zygote state. Um, so you know we received it from our parents, and all of our cells have it. So the germline theory really said that you know right from the germline we have individual genes for each different type of antibody. But, you know, it's really easy to reject these theories because just like how we discussed, there is no way that this much diversity in our antibodies can really be coded by this many unique genes. We just don't have enough DNA in the genome to be coding each separate antibody individually. And really, the math just doesn't add up here. So this really formed the uh, God question in immunology. So what God stands for is basically generation of diversity. And this question just felt like really difficult to answer. And it was kind of hard to even like imagine a theory as to how this is happening. But in 1965, um, these two scientists came along named William Dreyer and Claude Bennett. And they said, hold my pipette. <laughs> <laughs> so William Dreyer and uh, Claude Bennett proposed the that the antibody heavy and the light chains um, could be encoded completely separately. So what they're really saying is that instead of having one single stretch of uh, gene that is encoding for a whole antibody, the light chain, which is the smaller chain, um, can be made completely independent of the heavier chain, which is the bigger chain. So those two chains later could be put together by some sort of a cellular machinery into the final protein, which we're calling the antibody. So this does, you know, now start making a little bit of sense because the light and the heavy chains are located in completely different chromosomes. The heavy chain is in chromosome 14 and the light chains are really spread out all the way to either chromosome 2 or chromosome 22. Was anybody and surprised to learn about this for the first time? Yeah, I, would, I wonder I if, was, like evolutionarily yeah, yes. if there's like a duplication event or what does it mean? Yeah, a same protein whose genes are located in complete different chromosomes. How does that even make sense? That was so <laughs> strange to learn about. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so then, you know, Dreyer and Bennett also proposed that uh, there must be some sort of, some form of like genetic recombination in the antibody genes that's really allowing them to have this much diversity. And this was like a revolutionary idea. I mean, previously, only germ cells um, during meiosis were thought to go through this type of a recombination. But, you know, to say that recombination could be taking place in somatic cells was a completely new concept. And so this whole idea was called the Dreyer-Bennett hypothesis. And it quickly gained popularity, even in, you know, those scientists that were previously in favor of the germline theory. Um, and this is this is really what I like about scientists, that if you show them da data, they don't feel ashamed to change their mind. I mean, this is not always the case, but most of the time. More than you know. politicians and religious leaders. That's true. <laughs> and anybody listening to us, Dreyer and Bennett hypothesis, please remember that because it's probably going to be in your test if you're taking an immunology class. <laughs> yes, yeah, sorry for cutting you off, somebody. Oh, no worries. So... Uh, with that, another theory emerged in uh, 1970, so a couple years after this one, uh, called the somatic hypermutation theory. And, you know, this theory really suggested that inside of our somatic cells, like B cells, there could be some sort of a phenomenon uh, like hypermutation going on in the antibody genes that were giving rise to this much, you know, unbelievably diverse antibodies. So this is really different from gene combination where genes just are exchanging small parts or are rearranging themselves. In hypermutation, there are actually nucleotides that are mutating or changing. And this theory sounded good because, you know, it could explain how such large variety of antibodies could be generated. But it was a little bit hard to swallow for immunologists and geneticists because unlike recombination, hypermutation was never seen to occur anywhere. So it was like an imaginary concept. Does it occur to anybody that for scientists to just come up with something like this without having seen anything like this, isn't this a big deal? Yeah, it's a huge deal. To imagine something like, like this might be happening and then <clears throat> pursue this and find out that it's, it might actually be true, which, spoiler alert, I'll be talking about that. <laughs> <laughs> and, but just before I begin, can we say hypermutation is like mutation but taking place at a very rapid rate? Can we yeah. all agree on that? Okay. Yeah. And yes. I guess uh, one kind of connection that you can make about how the B cells and the, and the T cells are undergoing these actual DNA rearrangements and DNA mutations, and then they proliferate insane amounts afterwards. This mm -hmm. is why lymphomas and certain type of leukemias are super common is because the B cells have a lot of genetic rearrangements going on, and sometimes it does go horribly, horribly wrong. Yeah. And I would say that for the fact that B cells are the only type of cells that do something like this, like going through spawn, uh, mutation. And I would say they still do a very good job of not becoming a cancer than, <laughs> yeah. than they should, because mm -hmm. they, they, like this has to be a very controlled process. And of course it will go wrong, but it's going wrong fewer times than I would imagine it would. But yeah, back to our, our story here. After a lot of debate between those who were in the favor of the Dreyer and Bennett hypothesis and those who believed in the somatic hypermutation theory, some experiments in 1970s finally proved that both of these theories were correct. The gene recombination part proposed by Dreyer and Bennett 
occurred in developing B cells, while somatic hypermutation occurred in mature B cells after they encountered antigens. For this episode, we will only talk about the findings that originated from the Dreyer and Bennett hypothesis, that is gene, re gene rearrangement or gene recombination in B cells. And we are going to skip the somatic hypermutation today because it merits its own discussion, a separate Immunology 101 episode because it's a very beautiful phenomenon. Coming back, we knew at that time that the antibodies had distinct regions in their heavy and light chains. Now note that I said distinct regions within the heavy and light chain while the antibody itself is composed of different regions which we call the heavy and light chains. Now within the heavy and lights, there were some regions that did not change much compared to some other regions that changed very frequently. These regions were called constant and variable regions of the antibody respectively. In the late 1970s, Nobumichi Hozumi and Susumu Tonegawa, these are two brilliant uh, geneticists and immunologists at that time, these guys showed that there were multiple genes that encoded the antibody chains. In fact, there were genes that specifically coded for the variable and constant region of the heavy chain and the variable and constant region of the light chain. An interesting fact is that the constant and variable region of the same chain, that is, could be the light chain or could be the heavy chain, they can be located far apart in the genome of a B cell. They are brought together by DNA recombination machinery so they can form a completely heavy, a complete heavy or a complete light chain. I feel that when, if I was a scientist at that time, and if I saw genes located <clears throat> such uh, such long distances apart, I would have to guess that DNA must fold together in a three-dimensional space, right? Like, there has to be some way that yes. it's not it's not going to be linear. It has to be coming up together uh, in some way, and that's a very good hint. Anyway, uh, so yeah, Hozumi and Tonogawa, they thought this they. Uh, studied DNA recombination and they saw that these chains were coming together. And how do we know this? Well, while we don't discuss a lot of experiments on the podcast, especially in the 101, this is one ep uh, one experiment that I thought we should discuss. So, Hozumi and Tonegawa, they performed an exciting experiment where they cut down the DNA using restriction enzyme from an embryonic liver cell. Restriction enzymes are like scissors for the DNA. They cut at very specific spots in the DNA. Hozumi and Tonegawa, they uh, used radio-labeled DNA probes to mark antibody-producing genes. They found that in embryonic liver cells that do not produce antibodies, we all can agree that liver cells do not make antibodies, the probes for these uh, antibody genes, they bound at two different sites in the DNA. However, in the antibody producing B cells, the probes bound at the same piece of DNA. So in simple, in simple words, if you ran a agarose gel in the embryonic liver cells, you would find two different bands, but in the B cell, you would just find a single band. This must mean that the, the two pieces of DNA that were separate in the liver cells have been merged together in the B cell. This experiment further supported the Dreyer and Bennett hypothesis 
and with these experiments there was a wave in the biological community because for the first time somebody experimentally showed the recombination of DNA in somatic cells and from these experiments I assume Tonegawa's research group got very excited about their finding and they started looking more into these genes these genes that make up the antibody and uh, do you guys do you guys notice that this was a southern blot Yes. Nobody does a southern blot right now. I I did it. I tried it once in my undergraduate uh, classes, a, a genetic engineering classes. It did not work for me, and it, it's a very difficult thing to get to work. I'm I'm just surprised that there was a point where nobody did PCRs because we did not have PCR at that time, and this southern blotting is all that we could do. And you could get a novel with. A yeah, you could blot. get a Nobel Prize with it. Southern blot. Right? <laughs> I don't know. Um, uh, we, we've used it once or twice. It's it's a really useful technology if you think that like, because uh, like a PCR is only going to run across a very short uh, region or, well, mm -hmm. I mean, depending on, you know, what you design, but you can actually use a Southern to show like where things are and look at a really long stretch of something. Yeah, but, just yeah, you our, don't have to use it a lot. <laughs> just for our audience in, who don't know what's a Southern blot, it's a, it's a way to detect nucleotide sequences or especially DNA nucleotide sequences in uh, with a radio labeled probe that specifically binds to that particular sequence like a northern blot except which is for rna which is rna and then there's the western blot which is protein protein and the eastern and blot which doesn't exist it's not yet not yet <laughs> i i'm I, i'm guessing eastern blot will be for lipids <clears throat> i don't know how that'll work but it has to be for lipids dude we should invent it let's go we should invent it right after this episode Let's go. I'm going to write a grant for it. So let's go uh, finish this part of, of the history of, of the, the discovery. So here is another cool finding. When they were sequencing the light change of the antibody, they knew that the light change variable ratio is about 110 amino acids long. So they sequenced one of the variable region of the gene, which is called the V gene or variable. A point to remember here is that there are many variable genes for the light change. So coming back to the topic, this B gene that they sequenced was only long enough to give risk to 97 amino acids long peptide. They were short of 13 amino acids to form the complete variable region of the light change. So here's a question in front of them where is the gene that encodes for these 13 amino acids? So they looked closer to the constant region of the light change and found a stretch of DNA that coded exactly 13 amino acids. So this was not continuous with the variable change, but still formed a part of the variable change of the light change. So they named this small gene segment that coded for 13 amino acids the G segment. G stands for joining because it joined the B change with the uh, C chain Wait, or the constant. Wait, do you mean J chain? chain? So, <laughs> J chain, sorry, yes. Yes, yeah, sorry. So yes, the J J chain or J segment stands for joining because it, it joined the, the B chain and the C chain of the constant chain. So thank you for that. So it was a funny discovery because at this point we knew that the variable region of the light chain itself was made of two of two far apart gene segments, the V and the J gene. So this is basically the, uh, something that was uh, Jading said, uh, uh, was saying that there was a, a complete union of two different uh, 
regions of the DNA now put together. So finally, in, in 1987, Susumu Tonegawa was the sole recipient of the Nobel Prize in Medicine for his discovery about the gene rearrangement mechanisms in B cells. So finally, with these findings, there was a curiosity about the heavy change. So what if there are similar idiosyncrasies in the heavy change of the antibody? With the experiments, it was found that while the light change variable region has a B and a J change, the heavy change variable region has three different genes located far apart, but eventually come together during the making of the heavy change. This recombination machinery is only active in B cells, so that only B cells can reunite these gene segments and make a final product, the antibody. These three genes these three genes in the variable region were called B, G, and D, where D stands for diversity. And I feel it's a very random name to be given to a gene segment. <laughs> no offense to immunologists of the United States. Yeah, isn't it? Isn't it so, just so random? Because yeah. I can understand that they would call J segment because it joins the V and the C, but to call D as a diversity is just very random. Because the V genes are also creating diversity and the J genes are also creating diversity. Is it just me? <laughs> Although I, I, it was helpful for remember me, for remember the VGT. You know, this three letter. I wonder if that was the motive yeah, to name to it. <laughs> D, because it's <laughs> easier to remember. Oh, yeah. Nice. Well, cool. Now we know the history. Now you know it all. Hey, wait some... a second. I want to talk oh. something about Tonegawa. Oh, How, so sorry. It, it, it must be a big deal to win Nobel Prize by, by alone. Nowadays, it, you have to, like, there's there's not enough slots for her to be winning Nobel Prizes. They can't give it to more than three people. And there's usually a lot more people who are deserving than just three people. And for him what to be getting to... it by himself. What happened to Hozumi? I don't think he got it. I think maybe Did he... Did he die? I hope not, but yeah, he didn't. He, <laughs> he wasn't. I I looked up where Susumu Tonogawa is right now. So I was first surprised that he's still here with us, mm -hmm. uh, and he he's actually a neurobiologist now, cool. which is which is like a biggest flex possible that <laughs> you you win a Nobel Prize in immunology and you decide I'm done with this. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he can get a Nobel Prize in uh, Neurology. Yeah, maybe now. he's just collecting Nobel Prizes for different fields. <laughs> That's the biggest flex I can think of. So wait, I have a question. Did uh, Dreyer and Bennett get a Nobel Prize? I don't think they so. They had a theory. Yeah, but then no. the guy who proves it gets it, usually. Yeah. People, yeah. They still got a mention in the books. I think it's not as good as a Nobel Prize, but still good enough. How much was the prize money back in the day? No idea. It's not about the money. It's about it's about the fame. It's about it's giving back to humanity. Yes, yeah, <laughs> Natalie while hiding her tears. Oh. <laughs> it's always about the money. Where is my money? I can't I can't get lab reagents without money. Dude, what is money? Just a grad student. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Cool. Are you ready for fun facts now? Yeah, I'm ready for fun facts. Okay. I'm always ready for fun facts. Okay. 
So uh, these are about like how many different TCRs, BCRs you can make. So uh, there's so many different ways to encode for TCRs that um, it's estimated that if you just like math out all the different ways that it could work out, you could have 10 to the 15th or even 10 to the 20th unique different TCRs. That's just an insane, insane amount. Like, I don't think you'll ever encounter that much stuff like in your life. Um, is that a bazillion, a gazillion? I don't even know what the terminology is for that. That sounds right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you said, that's right. On the other hand, so you got B cells uh, and they have all these different VDJ segments. So keep in mind, it's not only that there are all these different VDJ alleles and all the different ones that you can combine. Like you also have another set of chromosomes from your parents, you know, your mom and your dad. So you combine that with, there's also in the junctional diversity, you can you can add some sprinkling of flavor in there too. So uh, that leads to a theoretical diversity of, of greater than 10 to the 14, um, which is further increased when you actually encounter something in their somatic hypermutation. And uh, you can basically have an antibody against anything and they'll have like nanomolar affinity. They combine very, very strongly to whatever they have, which um, is useful both in research and in uh, you know, translational medicine uh, in research, basically all molecular biology or a lot of molecular biology centers around using antibodies against, you know, whatever you're interested in. You can literally shoot up a rabbit or a goat or whatever with <laughs> a protein that you're interested in. And then you can just take their antibodies and you can use it for Western blots and, uh, you know, flow cytometry or whatever you want. Um, and then we also use antibodies in therapeutics, uh, like, Basically, any drug that ends with MAB uh, is an antibody. So. Yeah, it's the biggest revenue, or big revenue, if not the biggest revenue for a lot of companies that are selling these for the 100 different assays that rely on antibodies. Yeah, so you can make an antibody against whatever you want. It's amazing. So, Natalie, why we, we call it... it uh theoretical and so why why is not possible to find all of these uh, repertoire in a living person? well i mean you make uh new b cells like literally all the time in your bone marrow so i don't know about you but i'm not going to personally check and sequence every single one of your b cells <laughs> uh, and a lot of them die in the in the bone marrow a lot of them don't make it out um and a lot of them because they never encounter anything they're just kind of floating around you know so this yeah. is just like if you math out the number of possible vdj segments and then uh yes using math so it's all just theoretical math. nobody has ever empirically determined the number of different b cells you can make yeah and and you, you put a very valid point there that there are more there's actually more that do not make it out of the bone marrow than do mm -hmm. and which we will discuss about that in detail in a future episode yep I'm sure those B cells are making uh, receptors for antigens that don't actually even exist in yeah. the biological world as possible. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure no one's making any uh, B cells for smallpox anymore. <laughs> that, that was actually a huge problem. There was like this island and some, uh, you know, colon colonizers went there and they gave them, like gave the population this horrible disease. And then nobody came back to the island for like 60 years. And so then they reinfected everybody again, except for the people that had encountered this 60 years ago, of which there were very few. Most of them were dead. So oh. you can hang on to these for a very long time. Thank colonials for the small box everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, so uh, I guess we can do a little bit of a recap segment here. Um, you know, now that we know about all of these genes that are involved in making an antibody. Let's really go back to high school biology class. I know no one wants to even think about it, but you know, it's a long time ago. So now let's revisit that and revisit the concept of how proteins are made. So the DNA, but more specifically our genes in our cells, they're creating something called messenger RNA or mRNA. And this is basically the protein making instruction manual. So the mRNA are telling the ribosomes in our cells exactly what's going to be in the final protein. And, you know, antibodies are also proteins. And so they're made in exactly the same way. So now doing a little bit of a recap um, about how the genes are involved in antibody, in the final antibody product, they're basically three segments or regions in chromosome number 14 that encodes for the variable region of the heavy chain. And they are called the V genes uh, or the variable genes, diversity region genes, or the D genes, and the joining region genes or the J genes. And there are very, there are many V genes and there are many D genes and many J genes too. So when a B cell is making that heavy chain, one heavy chain V gene, one heavy chain DG, D gene, and one heavy chain J gene, if you try saying that fast, <laughs> um, needs to basically come together with the constant region. So don't forget the antibody, the very tail end of the antibody has a constant region too. And they need to form a continuous stretch of DNA. So the final continuous DNA that we have that's been formed uh, for the heavy gene will now be used to make the coding mRNA. And this will tell the ribosomes exactly what kind of heavy chain to make for this antibody. I have a question. How is this different from RNA alternative splicing? So in alternative splicing, an intact gene with multiple exons can produce multiple protein products. The only difference in this case is that every other V, D, or J genes that did not take part in this recombination will be excised out of this chromosome. So the genes are basically no longer present in this particular B cell, unlike alternative splicing where the gene stays as it is. So due to this phenomenon, one B cell can only produce a single kind of heavy chain with some conditions applied that we're going to discuss a little bit later. Hey, Samriti, so I just want to hammer on that point that you said that genes that did not take part in whatever, however this heavy chain was created, every other gene is just going to get removed permanently from the B cell genome. Can we say that? Mm -hmm. So they're just not there. So B cell, for the B cell, there should be no way to find them and make a different kind of heavy chain, even if it wanted to, because the other genes are yeah. not there. Okay. Mm -hmm. So since there are many V, D, and J genes, the different developing B cells can really recombine or mix and match and any number of V, D, and J gene segments in a lot of different ways to make these very unique heavy chains. So now we're kind of starting to understand how so much diversity can be made with, you know, only a fraction of the genes. So similarly, the light chain will also have the V genes and the J genes. So remember, they don't have the diversity genes. And in the light chains, the V and J genes will also come together with the constant region of the light chain to form the final light chain. So the heavy and light chains are then recombined to finally form an antibody. 
So with this, you kind of now have a big picture of how antibodies are creating this much diversity. However, we're only just starting. I mean, there's just so much more that we can learn in terms of the mechanism of how these genes are recombining and the process that really gives rise to a lot more diversity than it's visible on the surface. So I kind of like to think of this as, you know, playing with Lego. So many different things that you can make with, you know, just a few Lego pieces and it's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, uh, I had something to say back to, uh, you know, Jatin's point of cutting out everything and you only have these one things available. You do have, you know, two sets of chromosomes, one from your mom, one from your dad. And so if you successfully make a BCR off of one of those chromosomes, even though you still have the genes on the other one, uh, there's actually a way to shut down transcription from the other gene. This is called allelic uh, exclusion. It's really important because one B cell will only ever express one type of BCR. Yeah, that's a, that's a very important point. Thanks for bringing it up. And I, I'm, I'm also kind of curious how the B cell decides which chromosome to pick and which one to silence. Have you guys ever thought about this? Like, is it random oh. or is there a way? Dude, like maybe I've got a whole set of videos on that. Really? Really? <laughs> so wait, we know how the cell picks up, decides which chromosome to silence? Well, it starts uh, randomly. Uh, it'll pick one or the other to begin rearranging. And then it starts expressing uh, basically a BCR that doesn't have a light chain yet. It only has something called a surrogate light chain. And if it's capable of signaling down through the BCR and continuing to rearrange, then uh, that'll shut off the other one. But if it's not capable of doing that and it can't like find and go through all the things that a BCR is supposed to do, then basically uh, the cell is going to be like, okay, this is a lost cause. Let's go on to the other one. Um, and th there's a reason like why that BCR might not be able to work and it has to do with the J gene and how nucleotides are inserted in that to generate diversity. But I assume we'll talk about that when we actually talk about the mechanisms of how VD and yeah. J genes are combined. So. Yeah. So what what we just talked about it is a little out of the scope for the for this episode. So if you are listening to this, do not get overwhelmed. We are going to talk about this possibly in our next episode because we don't want to overwhelm everybody with this with one episode. But yeah, Natalie, thanks really thanks for bringing it up. And one day we'll also be talking about B cell signaling. I can't wait to talk about that. Cool stuff. Oh, there's so much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I have a question. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you said that one B cell can only make one uh, BCR. Is that the same for T cells? Oh, okay. Actually, I just learned this one. There's actually a very, very, very small subset of T cells that can make two different TCRs because there isn't the same mechanism of allelic exclusion. But I mean, the chances that you will have a T cell that successfully rearranges both uh, both uh, genes off of both chromosomes is very, very small. So you have less than a percent of these T cells that have two different types of TCRs. Oh yeah, there's also this part of the error that a lot of gene re rearrangement is not fruitful. Yeah, and... yeah. Basically only one third of the rearrangements actually work out. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Did you guys uh, hear about this? A strange cell that both express BCR. I was just going to. I was just going to about to mention that 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 freak cells. <laughs> oh, I haven't yeah. heard about this. That's what they're called, freak cells. Yeah, was... I call wow. them freak cells because I... they're not normal <laughs> in any way. <clears throat> and they found it in humans, which is like really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, they found in some diabetes, it was... but it, just for the audience, there are yeah. very very 
secluded types of cells, not in majority at all. Ex uh, exceptional, it's, it, these are exceptions, very hard to find, and they express both B cell receptors and D cell receptors. Just for uh, putting it out there, I am 100% sure you won't be asked about this in your immunology class, unless you're taking some very advanced class, for which, if you're taking that, you should not be listening to us. <laughs> <laughs> but if you want to learn more about it, it is Ahmed at all 2019 uh, from Cell. And that's Natalie, who remembers every author's and paper's name right off the top of the head. I also have Google. <laughs> um. Oh, yeah, you did? Okay, okay, probably that. All right, so we just talked about, uh, it was a very good recap, Samriti, how all the VGNs, uh, VDJs and VJs combined for this diversity. And to end the discussion i would i wouldn't just abruptly end it i would i would like to highlight a very important part about antibody nomenclature because if you have ever ordered antibodies for whatever assay you might have noticed that there are particular names associated with the antibodies let's see how they are named each chain the heavy and the light chain has a variable region which changes between different antibodies uh, as somebody just mentioned, the variable region of the heavy chain has V, D, and J segments, and the variable region of the light chain has V and Js only. So the other region that's not variable is the constant region, and it's the constant region that decides the name of the antibody for very obvious reasons, because it's easier to name things that don't change very frequently. There are two distinct light chain constant regions. One type of constant region in the light chain is called the lambda chain, and the other is called the kappa chain. Then there are five distinct heavy chain constant regions. And back in my high school days, I just remembered these as G-A-M-E-D or GAMED, where G stands for gamma, A stands for alpha, M stands for mu, E stands for epsilon, and D stands for delta. For example, if the gamma gene recombines with any set of variable V, D, or J genes, this heavy chain will contain the gamma constant region, and this heavy chain will be called a gamma heavy chain or the G heavy chain. An antibody that contains the uh, uh, Similarly, if the antibody, oh wait, yeah. An antibody that contains this gamma heavy chain will be called an immunoglobulin G or IgG. So now you know how IgGs are named. It's because of the constant region of their heavy chain. Similarly, if the epsilon gene from the light, uh, from the heavy chain, constant region recombines with any set of variable VDJ genes, Regardless of which VDJ genes are picked, this heavy chain will be called an epsilon heavy chain, and the antibody that contains this epsilon heavy chain will be called an immunoglobulin E or IgE. So that's one of the ways you name it using the heavy chain's constant region. Next, the light chain constant region also forms an identity of the antibody. For example, there are two unique constant regions, right? As we discussed, the kappa and the lambda chain. Sadly, I don't have any easy mnemonics to remember these, like gamed for the heavy chain, so you just have to remember kappa and lambda. Please remember those. Uh, if the light chain constant region is kappa, the light chain will be called 
a kappa light chain. If the light uh, and the light chain constant region also provides an identity to the antibody, though the identity that comes from the heavy chain is more dominant. And that's why sometimes you won't see articles mentioning name of the light chain in an antibody, but they will never forget to mention the name of the heavy chain. So JT, since we're talking about antibody nomenclature, I have heard this term antibody isotope a lot. What does that actually mean? Yeah, great question. So antibody isotype refers to the heavy and the light chain constant regions of an antibody. For example, if an antibody was generated from the mu heavy chain constant region and the lambda light chain constant region, the isotype of this antibody will be IgM with lambda with the lambda light chain. As we said before, sometimes the light chain name is omitted from research articles, but it's still an important part of the antibody isotype. So antibody isotype is just another way to name antibodies or classify antibodies. Well, now we're getting into class switch recombination, which happens a little later, but yeah. <laughs> we will talk about that in a probably possibly in a future episode. Also for everybody who does flow cytometry, I think they're more likely to also know the, the light chain isotype oh, because, yeah. because the inflow cytometry, the light chain isotype also makes a lot of difference. Uh, because you've got to match, you have an isotype control when you're when you're labeling your cells, and the isotype control must also be the same isotype for the light chain, not only just the heavy chain. Just an additional info that nobody asked for. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so that wraps up the nomenclature. And if we were to talk about how the G and Rene arrangement takes place, let's say it's simply cutting and pasting of DNA from antibody genes until they form a continuous strand that can be transcribed, uh, that can be uh, transcribed to a, to a mRNA and later translated. Okay, wait, 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 wait. There is absolutely no way it can be that simple. Like I have so many questions about this cutting and pasting. You know, how come we don't get a V gene that's pasted onto another V gene? And how does the cell even know where to paste the correct gene to make the final antibody transcript? And why doesn't there, this DNA damage really elicit an anti-cancer response. Like I desperately need answers. <laughs> well, those are some really relevant questions and I'm glad you asked. However, for that, you will have to wait for the second part of this episode. Oh no, it's a cliffhanger. And not just a cliffhanger, it's the biggest cliffhanger right next to the one from the Game of Thrones season finale. Will you be able to survive this? Or will you open the QB immunology textbook out of desperation? Only time will tell. But until then, here are some things you should remember from the episode, assuming you were asleep all these 50 minutes that we were blabbering. So let's make a final summary of the episode. So first, you have to remember that several antibody genes account for the billions and trillions of antibody diversity. And uh, in part, this diversity is due to the different types of antibody genes that recombine inside of a B cell. The unused antibody genes are excised or removed from the B cell genome with some conditions applied. And an antibody is made of two unique chains. There is a light chain and a heavy chain. And both of these chains are coded by unique sets of genes. And each chain consists of a variable region and a constant region. The variable region of the heavy chain consists of V, D, and J segments, 
there are multiple V, D and J gene segments which can randomly recombine to increase the diversity of the heavy chain. Similarly, the variable region of the light chain consists of V and J. Uh, note that there is no D segment in the, in the light chain. There are multiple V and J genes that can randomly recombine to increase the diversity in the light chain. Finally, the name of the antibody is derived from the constant regions of the heavy and light chains. There are five constant regions in the heavy chain, gamma, alpha, mu, epsilon, and delta. And there are two constant regions in the light chain, kappa and lambda. Whoa, did we just finish our year long episode that <laughs> we could not? It, can, I, yeah. can I read my stupid B-cell phone? <clears throat> Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so we have a B cell poem written by the one and only Natalie, the queen bee. <laughs> the, the only one of us who who really works with B cells. Well, that's. Oh me. yeah, I'm sorry, Natalie. No, Please go. no, you're good. <clears throat> How doth the little B cell respond to every threat? Rearrange to go and make us well. Variable. This cell's epithet. The immune system's greatest adaptation. Let us bind and better remember to use somatic recombination to use to make all sorts of unique receptors. Antibody memoranda structured from four protein chains, too light, kappa, or lambda, too heavy to fill my quatrain. So take the DNA from your VDJ, centrally, dogmatically, au revoir BCR, and embody secreted antibody. Whoa. Whoa. Woo. I would I would pay twenty dollars to sit in a theater and and listen to this. <laughs> How long did free? it take you to write that? Uh, <laughs> yeah, probably longer than my PI would would care to know. But, uh... <laughs> I would say we're doing better on the poem front than on the joke front. <laughs> <laughs> Very, very, very good one, Natalie. So yeah, with that, I think we have successfully, we successfully completed the first part of our gene rearrangement episode. We will be back soon, hopefully not in 2022, but this year with the second part of gene rearrangement, where we'll be talking about the juicy stuff, the mechanisms of how this rearrangement takes place, which is also the tough part when it comes to the specifics but yeah we'll try our best Eugenio, Samriti, Natalie thank you for joining me today this was a great discussion um, thank you for having us <laughs> thank, you. thank you and everybody who's listening to us thanks for listening we will be uh, we'll be back soon we do have a Facebook page where we sometimes post memes and useful information uh, we're also on Twitter and Instagram now so please do check us out there and we'll see you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.